Welcome to the Modern Yogi Podcast. An exploration of ancient wisdom. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back. What episode are we on? We are on episode number five. Thank you so much for following along, everybody. We're super excited. We want to maybe let's do a little catch up and see where we ended. Right, where we left off. Okay, so remember, we're on a battlefield in India somewhere 5,000 years ago, okay? (laughs) There's like a whole bunch of bad guys and a whole bunch of good guys. Krishna and Arjuna are on the good guys side. And Arjuna and Krishna are in the center of this battlefield. They can see everybody, right? And it's about to go down, right? Everyone's blowing their conch out. It's about to go down, right? Right. And both sides beautifully, symbolically represent justice, injustice, dharma, or adharma. So I think the last episode, both Duryodhan, the bad guy, Arjuna, the good guy, wanted to kind of go out there, scan the audience, see who's there for very different purposes, right? Duryodhan was like, oh, look at me. I'm so great. I'm so great. And Arjuna essentially spiraling into an existential crisis. He's freaking out because... Because he sees his family members and he's like, oh my God, am I have, do I have to kill them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and by the end of it, he is, by the end of um, chapter one, he's basically saying, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. And he's ready to walk away. Yep. He's like, nope, right. thank you. Come again. I'm not, not playing this game. Sorry. <laughs> Bye, Krishna. <laughs> and then we get to chapter two, which is called... The Contents of the Gita Summarized. Whoa, now that's a hefty title. We're going to have to break down a lot of things here because this basically lays the track for the rest of the Bhagavad Gita to unfold. That's great. And then chapter two is actually my favorite chapter. I'm super, super excited mm-hmm. to get dive into it. One There's of the a- longest ones also. Yep, I believe yeah. so. I think it's really interesting as a previously uh, math teacher, <laughs> the idea of putting all the information out can be super overwhelming, but then having heard it once and then going slowly and dissecting it, it actually makes you understand it better. So it's really cool that chapter two, we're already mm-hmm. at like, this is the summary. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> right. So as Priya says, as another fellow teacher, don't get overwhelmed because many of the things if you don't understand now will be explained many a times, even in further depth, depth in upcoming chapters. And as someone who's not a teacher on this podcast, <laughs> someone who just <laughs> likes loopholes, chapter two is great because it just summarizes the whole shebang, which nice. is great. There we go. So All before right. we dive in, why don't oh, we yes. start with the invocation? All right. Let's do it. Om Jnana Timirandasya Jnananjana Shalakaya Shakshurum Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Translation. I was born in the darkest ignorance and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances onto him. Beautiful. So Priya, would you like to take us off with text one of chapter two? Yes. Okay. Sanjaya said... Seeing Arjuna full of compassion, his mind depressed, his eyes full of tears, Madhusudana, Krishna, spoke the following words. Hmm. So before we dive into the purport, there's one little part that one of the teachers in our line says that I think wonderfully sets up this chapter. He says, speaking on a historical battlefield that is also pregnant with symbolic meaning, Krishna repeatedly tells Arjuna to conquer not only the military foes, but also illusion, the greedy senses, and the impulsive mind. If we are to follow Arjuna and conquer the illusion that keeps each of us from enjoying the unlimited life we crave, we must learn more about material nature and exactly how it seduces and imprisons us through its modes and qualities. All right, break it down for us. (laughs) I know, that was like a... So, right. Basically, it's saying if we want to live the lives we want to live 
unlimited, peaceful, happy, we got to understand what we're up against, right? So what are the, what are, what is the nature of this material world that traps us? What are the things that bring us sorrow and entangle us even further in, in grief? And how not to get caught up in it. Right. How to not get caught up and how to navigate it. So that's kind of what we're going to lay out here in chapter two. Very cool. And there's two lines in the purport that I think are important right now to bring up. The first one says, material compassion, lamentation, and tears are all signs of ignorance of the real self. Compassion for the eternal soul is self-realization. And the next line says, no one knows where compassion should be applied. Compassion for the dress of a drowning man is senseless. So point number one I want to bring up is sadness versus lamentation. Yeah. I mean, even that sentence that you first read is very heavy. Mm-hmm. Um because it's saying it is ignorant to lament or shed tears. But what's the difference, though? What's the difference between yeah. lamentation and sadness? So the definition of sadness is the state or emotion of being sad, while the definition of lamentation is an expression of grief, suffering, or sadness. Mm. So sadness is a feeling and lamentation is expressing that feeling? Yes. Okay. And like dwelling in that feeling, I guess. Yeah, would dwelling, say. like becoming depressed in it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the gist of it is to not lament, right? But there's a there, part of us will always say like, oh, but does that mean not to be sad, right? That's what you were trying to say, Sean. Right, because it can feel on one hand, it can feel so unnatural. Like hearing this, it's almost jolting. What do you mean I'm not supposed to lament over people I love? That's the most natural thing in this life, right? Someone leaves, you're sad. That's something even to this day, I'm reconciling those feelings when I 100% believe in the philosophy. The soul goes on. I don't think death is an ending, but it's sad for us who stay behind. So how to deal with that? So I think connecting to point one, sadness versus lamentation, if we can understand that we're not just a body, we're an eternal soul. While we're going to be sad that this person has left, we understand that they're continuing, they're okay. So we will be sad, but they're kind of trying to say, don't spiral into a depression or a lamentation where you cannot get yourself out because you have to understand they're okay. Their soul is okay. And I think that we will go further on to understand the idea of we're not this body, we are the soul as this chapter goes on. This chapter two is all about (laughs) that. Yeah. yeah. So it will, it will give more insight into why this is being said, right? Right. Absolutely. And point number two, I just wanted to bring up is right. Where to place our compassion. So basically understanding what is best for the soul versus the body. So whenever something happens in our life, it's very easy to feel like, oh, I'm so, this hurt me. My body is in pain physically, mentally, but we're not really analyzing what is conceptually best for our soul, for our evolution, for our higher consciousness. And I think this is illustrated by a little example. Shama and I, we were in a really bad car accident. I broke my spine and many different things that you can interpret as like, woe is me, this is horrible, the worst event of my life. But I think we can also even talk more later, but for both of us, this had so many profound ripple effects and realizations that helped us on our soul's evolution. So if we're thinking in terms of soul versus the body, It's funny to say that accident might have been a blessing in disguise, right? Yeah, it was one of the best things that ever happened. Physically, I feel like an old person now with my back, but you know, it's... Yeah, honestly, like when you think of a car accident, it's terrible, right? You have have to deal with the injuries. You have to deal with everybody else involved. You have to deal with car insurance, the financial. But if you think about everything that happens to you from a spiritual perspective Mm -hmm. and how that helped you grow and how that helped your soul grow, like if you look at the, the... If you have that gratitude and that perspective... 
everything shifts, right? Mm-hmm. Because if that's good for your spiritual growth, then that's probably the best thing that could have happened to you. Right. Or even a platform of, right, heartbreak. I think everyone can identify with heartbreak or any adversity that comes up in life. What, yeah. but what effect long-term does this have on your soul's evolution? Yeah. I, and the thing that happened for me was that I like, I think we both saw our lives flash before mm-hmm. our lives because our van, we were in a 12 person passenger van and it flipped on its head four times. Mm-hmm. So I literally saw the horizon flip. Like the sky was blue, the grass was green. And I saw that flip in slow Four motion. times, yeah. yeah. And mm. I literally was like, oh my God, my life just flashed before my eyes. And when you take it, when you, after everything was done and the dust had settled, you're like, oh my God, I'm still alive. But now I know that there's a greater purpose for my life. Why did I survive that, right? It was, it was actually crazy because the paramedics on the scene were like, it is a miracle mm-hmm. that all 12 of you are still alive. Mm-hmm. And that that line stuck with me for, for years afterwards where I was like, yeah. there's a reason we're alive and we have to grow spiritually. And that's what what's the, the journey that we're on right now. Right. So basically that's the point. What's best for our soul versus our body? Try to keep that in mind yeah. moving forward. I also think, I mean, I, I wasn't part of the accident, but I... You were going to the same place as us. I was, you were in a different I was supposed car. to be yeah. in the van. Yeah. I was supposed to be in the van. But I just think that for me, that whole accident was like a very interesting like observation of karma. And so maybe when we get further into the text and we talk about karma, we can talk a little bit about it. And just absolutely. You're it's right. really fascinating. I mean, obviously, it's a horrible thing that happened to both of you, but it's a very interesting, insightful something good to consider and think about, like you said, for the growth of all of us. Right. right? Mm-hmm. 100%. So, before we move on to two, there's one thing that I love about this particular verse is that is the emotion in this verse, right? It's like Krishna saw Arjuna full of compassion, his mind depressed, his eyes full of tears. Now imagine someone that you love so dearly and their face is just like about to cry. You All you want to do is console them. And so mm. this is a very beautiful verse from an emotional perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It paints an image of a very compassionate, loving, caring God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, but then it goes on to text two, and mm. then we see uh, uh, something. We else. see a different side. <laughs> see a little bit of a different side. All right, chapter chapter two, to- text number two. The supreme personality of Godhead said, "My dear Arjuna, how have these impurities come upon you? They are not at all befitting a man who knows the value of life. They lead not to higher planets, but to infamy." Okay, who's mm. the supreme personality of Godhead? What, like that's a that's a brand new term that comes up over and over and mm. over again in the Gita. That's a big way of saying God. Yeah, divinity. essentially. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Hey, I mean, I think the word Godhead is hard for me to fully wrap my head around, so I always just think it means God. But the supreme personality is saying like the greatest of all personalities, the right? source of all sources. Exactly. So yeah, so you'll see that that term come up over and over again, and so that's essentially it means God. It means Krishna. Right. So Krishna's like, what you doing, man? This is, uh, you know better. Yeah, he's basically trying to shake Arjuna. He's shaking him and be like, you know better than this. Why, why are you acting this way? And when you hear this at first, you might think Arjuna's response is so normal, so natural. But Arjuna is privy to this ancient secret, almost wisdom that should help him navigate this. That's why Krishna's yeah. like, come on, Arjuna. Right, right. So in this and the purport for text two, they they go a little bit further to talk about this idea of God and the names that we call him. We talked a little bit about his like nicknames that he has, like Madhusudana or, you know, different nicknames that he has. But there's also the idea of Bhagavan. 
and Bhagavan is the ultimate, is ultimately the absolute truth, right? So when we're talking about um, bhakti and the philosophy, we're talking about knowledge. And so what is the highest part of knowledge is like the absolute truth. Right, because right? in this realm, we have many subjective truths, right? Yep. Right. So um, in this case, they're talking about how there's three faces for absolute truth. So the first one is Brahman or the impersonal, all-pervasive spirit. So why don't we pause there a yeah. second and analyze what is Brahman? I, I guess you guys can chime in, but I think when we kind of think the universe, the yeah. world, life, we take away the personal attributes and make it impersonal. Right. So if we believe, obviously, the Supreme Personality is still a personality. So... Mm. If you take away that personality, you're now thinking of a God that is light or energy. energy. <laughs> yeah, like, something like that, right? Many people, when they look at a sunset, wow, I love it. I can feel connected to God. We want to appreciate the artist rather than his creation. Mm, I like Who's that. Who's behind it all. So that's the idea of um, the impersonalist uh, face. Um, and then the second one is Paramatma. Or, uh, as we will learn, is a localized aspect of the supreme within the heart. So basically, it's God within us, right? Yeah. It's our God particle. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of, would you say it's kind of like our conscience as well? Like it's that little mm. voice that says, don't steal that, that <laughs> butterfinger, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. is it is kind of maybe? It, it could be. I mean, it's definitely God within us. So he's guiding us, definitely. Yes. And something we still have free will. Yes, true. But he's definitely guiding us. Like, can don't I, steal the butterfinger. Can I share a little something funny? This line, the, the supreme within the heart of all living entities. I work at a private Catholic school. And when I made a little comment to the kids about God's in all of your hearts, one little boy said, how, if God is one, how can he be in all of our hearts? Good and I question. paused and I was like, you know what? Forget the lesson. We're going to talk about this right now. <laughs> so I was like, okay, imagine like the ocean that's so vast and expansive. And then you take one drop from the ocean and you take another and you put those drops in a, a ton of people. The ocean's still the ocean. You haven't taken anything out of the ocean. So mm. that's kind of like God is everywhere and so expansive that he can put a drop in everyone and still be one God. I love wow. that. That's so beautiful. That's, what a beautiful I'm one. so glad you got the opportunity to share something like oh. that. That's, How old was this kid who asked this question? Honestly, questions? this was a first grade class and they were all incredible. So like six or seven, yeah? Yeah. Children get it without knowing they get it. You know, like in so many religious paths, they say become childlike to enter the kingdom of God and yeah. children are they feel spirituality on such a deep real level that kid yeah. is like so, like a spiritually mm -hmm. minded per, like he's probably a monk from previous lifetimes so <laughs> ask right, a question right. like that at seven years and old and we kind of go through life and become a little jaded and a little like we stop accepting and, and mm -hmm. oh, I don't believe in anything nothing makes sense and you lose a little that innate magic that children have yeah that like almost uh, openness acceptance mm -hmm. like there's something there right that yeah. magic all right. And then the third aspect. So we had first we had like the impersonalist. Then we have God within our hearts. And then the third one is like knowing Krishna or God as who he is, like his personality and like actually his personal form. Right. Right. And so the cool thing about this is they, they Prabhupada goes on to give a little explanation um, to how else we can think about this. And he goes to say, um, these aspects can be explained by the sun, which has also three different aspects, sunshine, 
the sun's surface, and the sun planet itself. One who studies the sunshine is only in the preliminary student. One who understands the sun's surface is further advanced, and one who can enter the sun is the highest. So just kind of understanding like the difference between someone might be like, oh, the sun is just the warmth that it emanates, or... Um, or actually the sun is a planet and then someone's like, well, there's so much more to the sun if you really go and study it further. Right. Right. And I will say, I think this personal aspect of God is almost the hardest for most people to wrap their head around when they haven't grown up with a personal conception of God. Mm. Right. The more they connect to God is the energy. God the is light. Yeah. The light. Wow. It's everywhere. So for many people that I've connected to that, yeah, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. God is a person. Because you know what? Technically, if our source, how could our source of all sources not have the qualities we, that have? we have? That is yes. logically and technically impossible. What all variety and fun and personality exists here, but not in God? Yeah, we derive it from him. So we must have all of it. Right. And there's this beautiful part about um, this word Bhagavan, right? And it's like, what does that really mean? It's like, it's like Krishna possesses all of the good things in life, right? What does Krishna mean? Like, what does that Sanskrit word mean, right? It means yeah. all attractive, right? Mm. And so what, like, when you think about celebrity culture now, it's like we worship people <laughs> on Instagram, like Kim Kardashian, right? What is she known for? She's just known to be very, very beautiful, mm. right? But it, it talks in this purport. It's like, there are so many people out there that are very rich, very powerful, very beautiful, very famous, very learned, very detached, um, very, and they have all the strength in the world, but who has all of those qualities? Right. There's nobody, no nobody except Krishna, right? Yeah. And so it's this beautiful understanding that like Krishna has all of these things and uh, and no one else can p possess all of those opulences besides him. Well, right. Shama, when you were speaking, I was just imagining how star starstruck do people become in the face of a celebrity? Whoa, they're so talented. They're so beautiful. Now, it's mind boggling to imagine someone who literally has all Everything. of those qualities yeah. and they're there in front of you. Yes. I, I almost got chills. I, it's like yeah. you cannot wrap your head around that level. Yeah. And I don't know if this will make any sense, but even with a celebrity and you think like, oh my gosh, they're amazing. They're beautiful. They're so talented. And then they do something that disappoints mm. you. Mm. Right. And then you're like, wow. Glass shattered. You conception know, but, broken. But they were so beautiful and all these things. How could they not be perfect? Well, listen, no one's perfect. Yep. Except right. Because God's beauty is not just on the outside, but within as well. The most noble, the most, all of those things that we need. He has them all. Yeah. No one is equal to or above him. Absolutely. So in this verse, Krishna's basically shaking Arjuna being like, what are you doing? This is not you. Like snap out of it. Yeah. And in the context, we're just learning more about Krishna himself and mm. what position he has to even say that. Yeah, true. All right. Um, so boom, 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 anything else before we move on? To oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Prince. Yeah. So um, then Should we, we tackle go, this? Priya? Yes, let's do it. Um, so if you go further on to text two, um, it talks about Aryans. Right. It, should we read that part? It says, yes. such impurities were never expected from a person belonging to the civilized class of men known as Aryans. Wait, he's what impurities? Yeah. He's talking <laughs> about Arjuna right now. And right, Arjuna's lamentation for his kinsmen 
is is normal in in this con in the world, but is unbecoming of someone in Arjuna's stature or his level. So that's why it goes on to say such impurities were never expected from a person belonging to the civilized class of men, known as Aryans. And it proceeds to say the word Aryan is applicable to persons who know the value of life and have a civilization based on spiritual realization. Yeah, can you pause it for a second? I, I I'm sure this is good as it goes on, but I think. I might be incorrect. So, you know, mm -hmm. don't quote me on this. <laughs> yeah. um, but the idea was that back in the day, the way civilization would work is that the kings and all the rulers were trained in the spiritual knowledge mm -hmm. so that they could guide the civilization and the population the in society. the rightful way. Yeah. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So they were, they were good hearted, uh, lawful, like all these good qualities because they were trained to do as such. And therefore they were also trained in like, knowledge itself spiritual realization right so then it, it goes to say persons who are led by the material conception of life do not know that the aim of life is realization of the absolute truth so basically it's saying these aryans were trained to know that what we experience here materially right so like our jobs uh, the connections we foster and all these things are not ultimately the goal of life and right. I want to do a side comment. That word Aryan. Might, We've heard that word before, yeah, right? That <laughs> might, I heard that. That might have a little negative connotation from some people if they associate it with, you know, Hitler's era. But I just want to say quite logically and factually, this predates Hitler's time from way, way before. If anything, he derived his twisted, perverted inspiration from this ancient Sanskrit knowledge. So this has nothing to do with that connection. This yeah. is independent of that. Hitler was known actually to take a lot of things from Eastern philosophy, things right. like these words like Aryan or like the, even the swastika, right? And, and, and switch it up and interpret it and make it used for his own perverted, um, ideologies. Yeah. Cause it's funny to say everything in this world seems to be a perverted reflection of things in the spiritual realm. So that would be one example of something becoming a little perverted. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the, yeah, the word here, Aryan, is just referring to men. But I think furthermore, there's, there was this sort of code of conduct, sorry, um, of like a chatria. And, right. and we'll go more into a chatria in the next verse. But it's just, like I said, I think the kings and the, the soldiers and everyone who was leading society was trained in such a spiritual way to know that there was a goal to life beyond living the, your current life, if that makes sense. We'll kind of keep it, it deeper for now. Deeper yeah. It yeah. goes deeper than that for yeah, sure. You got it. <laughs> All right. Text number three. Okay. O son of Prita, do not yield to this degrading impotence, Krishna says. It does not become of you. Give up such petty weakness of heart and arise, O chastiser of the enemy. Mm. Wow. That's that. At first, they're right. That might sound harsh. You might think, Krishna, how is he not going to lament having to kill his family? What are you talking about? <laughs> but I think I think we should let the book tell us the story right, because right. it kind of explains as it goes. It. Right. This book takes us on a journey, which is a journey of elevating our consciousness to the point where then after this, if you go back and look at this, you might yourself interpret some of these things differently. Yeah. And so here we go back to talking a little bit about in the purport, we talk about chatriyas and brahmanas and like, what are their roles? What are those? Yeah. <laughs> let's get, let's get let's into it. it because these, these words come up a lot during the Gita and I've heard them as just like coming from an Indian background. I've heard the word brahmana. Mm. I've heard the word kshatriya before, but I've like never knew before what they meant. Yeah. So 
Chatriyas, uh, they're as part of roles in society back in the day, um, everyone kind of had a duty. Right. And so you had on the top the Brahmanas and they were the spiritual guides in a general sense, but they were also like the... The priest class. Yes. Yeah. Right. Thank you. I was like, I was thinking librarian, but I was like, that's not it. <laughs> yeah. They were definitely the priest class, right? Yeah. They were, yes. yes. The monks the scholarly, or the nuns of nowadays. The scholars, the monks, the priests. All of these, the the, the thinkers, the knowledge seekers, the, that was kind of their role. And they also, um, they sanctified activities. They would do sacrifices. And you know what? I realized we've talked about the word sacrifice before and there's different connotations to <laughs> mm-hmm. it. So I just wanted to clarify. Yep. There's different types of sacrifices that were done and we will get more into them as we continue talking. But the one that we talked about previously was about, I believe, if, if, and if you guys can remember, it was about the, the, the man that was born to kill Dronacharya. You remember? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where his father did a sacrifice to get that son. So the son would kill Dronacharya. Right. These are different than like the human sacrifices they did in the Aztec and Inca areas. We're not talking about goat sacrifices. No, no, no. We're talking about like doing some sort of austerity to achieve something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you can, uh, an example of one that I can think of is like someone would stand on one foot uh, meditating for days, if not months uh, and enduring difficult weather but just focusing on meditating and through doing that austerity that sacrifice then they would receive uh, a boon or like a special award yeah. <laughs> and you see it nowadays for example within christianity lent you you sacrifice something you give up something mm-hmm. to try to gain spiritual uh whatever insight spiritual prizes. feelings prizes <laughs> and maybe nowadays they take it less literally it's just like you're going to gain some depth of feeling from doing this sacrifice right we do that for kartik too right right either we tradition. give up something or we take on something more spiritual for that particular month right right so similarities so, that, so that, i think that was the context of the word sacrifice here so i just wanted to clarify that for a second um and so then that, Kshatriya. yeah so that was brahmanas right okay, so, so brahmanas, brahmanas. and now chatriyas are the warriors they're right. the fighters Soldier they're the class. protectors mm-hmm. yeah so they're they're trained in the military um studies and and Satrias were also very noble men they're not like go dominate and kill everyone right no they're very lawful that was part of the thing of being a Chatriya. Because again, all of these people are trained in the spiritual sciences and they're all trained right. in like what being a proper human being right. is. Right. Many codes of conduct. Yes. Yeah. Chatriyas yeah, were supposed to stand up for justice. Yes. Right. And so there's a line in the purport that says Krishna does not did not want Arjuna to become unworthy uh, an unworthy son of a Kshatriya, right? Mm. There's like an honor to being like a lawful justice fighting for soldier. Yeah. Right. And then Krishna said, that is such an attitude in Arjuna that did not fit his personality. <laughs> so that's why he was confused. He's like, this is not who you are. You are a lawful man. You always fight for justice. Like what's going on with you? Right. right. Yeah. So then we go on to text four. Arjuna said, O killer of enemies, O killer of Madhu, how can I counter attack with arrows in, a ba- in battle men? Like... Bhishma and drone. I'm sorry. Is that what it says in yours too? Oh, how can I counterattack with arrows in battle? Men like Bhishma oh. and Drona. <laughs> sorry. Could not read that one. Let me try that again. Yeah. Arjuna said, O killer of enemies, O killer of Madhu, how can I counterattack with arrows in battle? Men like Bhishma and Drona, 
were worthy of my worship. Okay, so let's take this back a little bit. Bhishma is the grandfather. He is the grandfather of everybody. Is this one the grand uncle? The grand uncle? The grandfather. Producer, sir. Just can you clarify? We have our lovely producer here, Abhijit, who is our fact checker. And super high techy tech person who keeps Very us on track. Also. And he keeps all of us in track. <laughs> Bhishma is? The grandfather. The oh. grandfather. Grandfather who? The grandfather of the Kuru dynasty. Cool, cool, cool. Nice. That's so thank you so much, producer, sir. Um, and then Drona. Drona is also the the like military guide who yes. trained army teacher. He's the army sides. teacher. So so basically, he's trying to say Arjuna is like making some arguments here, and he's basically saying, "How can I kill my grandfather and the guy who taught me everything I know about being a soldier and being a good soldier?" At Especially that, right? because they're worthy of my worship. Yep. Like these are like. Mice elders. Yes. Right. Because especially in this time, maybe nowadays it's been a little lost, but you had such respect for your elders. These were like beacons of knowledge and wisdom that, you know, nowadays, I don't know, like you might talk to your elders in whatever way you want. But back then they had such a worthy, beautiful culture and tradition around that. Respecting yeah. their superiors. Yeah, and, 100%. And, and I think part of the Chatra culture was like, even if they attack, they should not be counterattacked, right? Like mm-hmm. there's these right. sort of chatria laws. Yep. And it's, it's like a code of conduct, right? Exactly. It's like your superiors, you respect them no matter what. Yeah. Right. Like even if they do some harsh behavior, they should not be like treated harshly in return. Like right. that was sort of the... So he's basically turning to Krishna and saying, what do I do? And there's a line right before text where this says, Arjuna was the most intimate friend of Krishna and Krishna was directly guiding him on the chariot. So I love that. Krishna is so like, he is the source of all sources, but he's also his dearest friend and he wants to help him out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And one last thing I wanted to add here is like, um, Arjuna says, would Krishna ever attack his own grandfather, Ugrasen, or his mm. teacher, Sandipani Muni? Yeah, like so these are Arjuna's the arguments that he was throwing making. Throwing out some He's arguments. Like, oh, would you do that? Because like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to. Right. <laughs> I'd rather run to the forest and live an ascetic life. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> um, so text number five. It would be better to live in this world by begging than to live at the cost of the lives of great souls who are my teachers. Even though desiring worldly gain, they are superiors. If they are killed. Everything we enjoy will be tainted with blood. Oof. Ooh, Heavy what line. A verse. Mm-mm-mm. So diving into the purport, it says, according to scriptural codes, a teacher who engages in an abominable act and has lost his sense of discrimination is fit to be abandoned. Bhishma and Drona were obliged to sit, take the side of Duryodhan. So under these circumstances, they have lost the respectability of teachers. But Arjuna thinks of them nevertheless that they are still his superiors and so like he has like a Mm. even though they've kind of broken the rules in a sense of like what qualifies you to be a superior in someone's eyes he's like you're still worthy you're still important to me like that's you know what i mean so good yeah because we're so quick to sometimes like oh they're wrong i don't believe in them but arjuna's wanting to cling on to any last thread of hope of like these are my superiors krishna how can i yeah, imagine yeah. sometimes when our parents do something wrong and we're like, okay, we're definitely not going to listen to that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, he still has so much respect for his authority figures, right. you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a problem. So now it's like, if he doesn't conquer the enemy or go into battle and all of this, then he would be, begging would be his only means of sustenance. Right. But he's willing to take that on, to not have to 
you know, kill and, his and, superiors. And think about that, right? Like, because Shatri is still pretty high up there in terms of, like, the class, right? And so for him to be like, okay, I'd rather beg, like, beg on the streets than, than, than do this, than kill, that shows you how far he's willing to go to avoid bloodshed. Oh, and one side note about the caste system, because I think it's become very convoluted nowadays in India. The caste system... Right. Rather than being something you're born into that you cannot elevate yourself up, like even if you have Brahminical qualities because you might have been born in whatever. Brahminical? Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Priestly. <laughs> Priestly. Like, like qualities of a Brahmana, which yeah. Priya had just described. So even if you had those qualities, sadly, sometimes if you were born of a lower quote unquote caste, you're locked into that. And that's kind of the perverted version of in these days, a caste system was very much about your, your internal side, your sense of elevation. So you had to earn your title, not by birth, but by your state of consciousness. Yeah, I think yeah. the caste system right now is super, super perverted. And it's like, it's not anything that how it was meant to be 5,000 years ago, right? It's a very, very different interpretation. And uh, we're not referring to the current day caste right. system yeah, that, it's, that right. is in India. It's like um, like the sorting hat in, <laughs> in Harry, Harry Potter. Potter. Love it's it. Like, Wait, explain that. I'm not a Harry Potter fan. Oh um, so goodness. you have to explain this reference. <laughs> All right, so Emily, try to help me out here. But okay. there's four houses, right? Right, right. And so like you would put a hat on your head and the hat would be like, you belong to Gryffindor, right? Or you belong to Slytherin and you'd have to accept it. And would that Priya be based on your birth or on your inner qualities? What's it, that it based on? It was kind on? of based on your quality. So like right. depending on whether you were brave or you were cunning or you were smart or you were like, depending on the quality you had, it would kind of place you, right? I love that you so, brought this up, Priya. This is the best <laughs> like analogy. To, yeah, I it was totally know. the sorting hat. Yeah, the idea is that it, it comes from within. It comes from like your qualities and where you will best do your best duty right, right. so like the people who yeah. are naturally warriors you are not going to put them to be brahmanas because they're right. not going to want to sit there and read all day or yeah. you know whatever else brahmanas right. so are doing everyone in society had their role based on what innate qualities they possessed yeah exactly exactly Beautiful. so um, anything else or diving yes, into i want to say one last thing in here um it says that um Based on Arjuna's qualities, he was fit for liberation. And this is, I think, the first time we see the word liberation. And so I just wanted to kind of bring it up. We'll talk more as we go on. Like I said, everything in this book will get further explained the further we go on. But liberation is the idea that you do your duty in this lifetime so well that you are God-centered in your duty also that by the end of your lifetime, you can go back to God rather than having to be reborn in another body and try all over right. again. Yeah, it's like not going through the rat race of being born and dying and being born and dying. There has to be some sort of end to it, right? Exactly. It's right. Like that is liberation. And That's, the beautiful thing is you don't have to wait till the end of death because so many of the teachers high, high up on our, in our line, that's an internal state. They're already liberated, liberated beings, meaning they're not trapped by all the whatever qualities you might, uh, jealousy, greed, uh, anger. They are already internally liberated. Like it's a state of consciousness. Cool. All right. Moving on to text number six. All righty. Nor do we know. So who's speaking here before I begin again? It is Arjuna. Arjuna, yeah. right. Yep. Nor do we know which is better, conquering them or being conquered by them. If we kill the sons of Dhritarashtra, we should not care to live. Yet they are now standing before us on the battlefield. And so yeah, Arjuna did not know whether he should fight or and risk unnecessary violence. That's a big word here, unnecessary violence, because right. he thought it was unnecessary. 
although fighting is the duty of the Kshatriyas, right? He would rather beg and just live a life of begging. I think the fact that you said unnecessary violence is also interesting because as we go further, we're going to learn that it is the Kshatriyas' responsibility to be violent, but only for the justice. Right. Yep, to stand up for right? justice. Only for the right reasons. And so he's saying, is it the right reasons? Like, right. But in this sense, I think he's kind of thinking like, oh, I mean, if I kill them, will I be happy? I'm not right. going to be happy. This is not going to be good no for me. No one's going to be happy. No yeah. one. How? How is yep. this going to be good? And as Priya had said, if he didn't conquer them, begging would be the only means of subsistence. And nor was it certain that they'd be victorious because either side, technically, in his eyes, might emerge victorious. So even if victory awaited them and their cause was justified, still the sons of Jitarastra, if they died, it would be very difficult for Arjuna which it goes on to say, all these considerations by Arjuna prove that he's not only a great devotee of the Lord, but also highly enlightened and had complete control over his mind and senses. Love that. Anything else before we move on to text seven? No, I think we're ready. Right. Last line. Oh, Unless yeah. the senses are controlled, <laughs> there is no chance of elevation to the platform of knowledge. And without knowledge and devotion, there is no chance of liberation. So I like the combination of knowledge and devotion because, you know, if it's all just devotion or feeling with no structure, we kind of float, right? We can just, oh, so much feeling, but we don't know what to do with it. Mm. So we need knowledge. But if knowledge is devoid of feeling or devotion, you miss the point. That's yep. kind of cold. So I mm. like the merging of these two aspects, knowledge and devotion. Yeah. And you mentioned this, like the senses are controlled. We'll get into all of this talk about controlling senses because it sounds a little kind of crazy. So we'll get into this as we, <laughs> as we get further, further on. Yes. Text seven. Yes? Yes. Okay. Now I am confused about my duty and have lost all composure because of miserly weakness. In this condition, I am asking you to tell me for certain what is the best for me. Now I am your disciple and a soul surrendered unto you. Please instruct me. There's a wow. shift here. There's a shift because mm -hmm. right now Arjuna was spitting out arguments. He's <laughs> like, no, not going to do it because X, Y, Z. Not going to do it because X, Y, Z. And then now he's like, oh, oh, okay. Now I really don't know what to do. Yeah. I like the role is switching here from this combative person to a more submissive. submissive. Just tell me what to do because I really don't know. Right, yeah. right. A shift from buddy, buddy, my friend Krishna to, oh, wow. Okay. Maybe Krishna does have the answers here. Yeah. And so then this kind of starts a conversation about a spiritual teacher. Right. Because in this moment, Arjuna is saying, I am ready to learn from you what the right thing is to do. And so um, it says right here, all Vedic literature advise us to approach a bona fide spiritual master to get free from the perplexities of life, which happen without our desire. I love that. Without it, right. Who here is truly happy in the material world? We try to gain so many things. If I'm wealthy, I'll be happy. If I'm famous, I'll be happy. If I have many friends and a beautiful husband or wife, I'll be happy. But if I don't have to work ever and money just comes to me, I'll be happy. Yep. And <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, yeah, that's not the solution. I remember even, side note, an interview that flashed through my head, Jim Carrey once said, I wish everyone could be famous so they could realize that is not the key to happiness. Ooh. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's true. But I want, I want to break down that sentence a little bit. Yep. So yeah. all Vedic literature, so all our texts, our spiritual texts are saying that they, we should approach a bona fide spiritual master. Now that you're going to see a what ton. What does that mean? <laughs> you're going <laughs> to see a ton. 
So bonafide is like, they fit all the right qualifications. They're like, uh, and we're going to learn what those are. They're They're legit. legit. That's exactly what bonafide means. They're legit. And then spiritual master, uh, considering it's a role, a submissive role of like teacher and student, that is, yes. They use similar terms when they talk about Jesus and his disciples, the apostles, Mm. right? That's something maybe a lot of people can relate to. A spiritual master is basically a guide for his disciples or his followers. Spiritual guide, spiritual teacher. Yes, we, you know, use those yeah, and we've heard the term guru before, right? I yeah. mean, the, we've heard it in the Karate Kid, that spiritual teacher <laughs> is like the wax on, wax off type of situation. And so it's just someone that teaches you, right? right. And we've all had gurus or spiritual t- teachers ever since we were young. We've had, yeah. like, our parents have been our gurus and our spiritual teachers. We've had teachers in, like, elementary school that have, like, shaped our lives, right? So we've had these all throughout our entire life. And we need these people in order to learn. We can't be anywhere without people who are guiding us. Right. And so like, I, I, there's a little bit of a difference between um, a spiritual teacher and like our teachers in school and, you know, all of that. And it says here, a person with a bona fide spiritual master is supposed to know everything. What should not therefore remain in material perplexities? So basically the idea, and we're, we're going to get more into this, but the idea is that a spiritual master has these certain qualities um, that they have spiritual knowledge. They've already done self, like they've worked on themselves to find the answers and the questions. And they've done living, the work. Yeah. They've done all the work and they're living a life that is, uh, that you would see and say, wow, like that's admirable, right? Like they're living a spiritual, uh, cruelty-free, mindful lifestyle and therefore can guide others to find, to follow in similar footsteps. I don't right. know if I did a good justice no, on that. No, totally. Absolutely. That's completely <laughs> correct. And I think there's a few more parts that are worth bringing up in the purport. We're going to do it next time because I think it's a good wrap up place with, as Shama said, there's been a shift in mood. He surrendered. He's his disciple. And he's saying, please instruct me. I'm yours. And we're going to leave it with that tone. All right. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in to this episode. Yeah. yeah. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye.